1: Legendary Vanguard founder Jack Bogle sat down with us to discuss his thoughts on the GOP plan, Bitcoin, and his outlook for the bond market. We kicked things off by discussing Jack's thoughts on the ETF business. Where I began was asking him about the freight train that is destined to be a $10 trillion firm within the next few years, Vanguard, and whether he was worried at all about how quickly the ETF industry was amassing assets. Take a listen.
2: Well, <laughs> those two things don't go to, to, together very well. Our strength at Vanguard has been the traditional index fund, the S&P 500 total stock market, which I started way back in, in 1975. And that has been our strength. We are 80% of that market. And that traditional index fund market, a buy and hold market, broad market, uh, is about half of the index business. And the ETF business is the other half of the business. And they are totally different. Uh, they both have passive investment policies, but the traditional index funds have passive investors, and the, the ETFs have active investors. So ETFs have heavy trading, they have a lot more speculation. They have a, a product line, so-called, that, that has very speculative funds. So I'm, I, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't predict uh, that, that that would continue to flourish. You know, we have data here that shows that uh, ETFs have had, in the last 10 years, a 4.7% annual return, and the traditional index fund have had a 7.1% annual return. In other words, the ETFs have not worked out well for investors. I don't know why nobody knows this. Uh, so in a decade, the uh, traditional index fund's up about 100% cumulatively, and the ETF about 60%. I mean, that's not, that's not a strong record.
1: This is, this is a really compelling point you're making. ETFs have not worked out well for investors. Are you concerned that they are going to taint the record of indexed funds because they are being treated uh, synonymously?
2: Well, I, I think there's a different, uh, for the want of a better word, a different ethic in ETFs. It's by the factors. It's leverage. It's uh, finding narrow niches in the market Uh, very quickly to see if you can bring a lot of the sheep in to shear them. I mean, one of the most recent ETFs was long electronic marketing, short retail marketing. I mean, that's an interesting idea. It might even work. But uh, some entrepreneur jumps on that bandwagon and says, now he can package it for you. It's a very entrepreneurial business, or to use a phrase that the great Henry Kaufman once used, it's populated in many respects by financial buccaneers. So it's a different business. It's finding product to sell and uh, because there's a great market among brokers and investment advisors who want to sell it. When they want something to sell every day. They have to sell something every day. And that's the, 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 sort of the rationale for the business. Uh, trading, trading, trading. And uh, you see it most clearly in a, it's a little bit of an offbeat ETF, to say the least, the spider. Uh, but it trades. They, they brag about it. Fifteen billion dollars an hour or something, (laughs) and uh, it 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 turns over at about two or three thousand percent a year, and it's banks trading with one another. That's, That's a very different implication for the future of the ETF business than the than the more or less retail business that people are buying speculative ETFs.
0: Mr. Bogle, you talk about financial Buccaneers. I'm going to throw a couple topics at you. Want your thoughts? Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies.
2: Well, I'm not so good at crypto, but let's talk about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a speculation. Why is it a speculation? Because it has no underlying rate of return, just like gold. Stocks have earnings and dividends. Bonds have, have interest coupons to hold their value up. Uh, but the, the uh, Bitcoin has nothing uh, in its value except uh, that you want to sell it to somebody for more than you paid for it. Well, that's about as good a definition as you can get. It may be a great speculation. That's the funny part of it. Uh, But as I said the other day, um, the Bitcoin was then only about 10,000, you know, that it's a speculation, and I'd avoid it like the plague. And I said, if it gets to 20,000, don't talk to me. Wait till it gets back to 100.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right, they may not be buccaneers. (laughs) What's your thoughts on the GOP's tax overhaul plan as you know it?
2: I, I, I think it's very unfortunate. I think it has grave moral issues in favoring the wealthiest people in the country compared to the people that are doing all the hard work. It just seems crazy. Uh, I, I think it's really bad, some little pieces of policy. You know, this is a country that's supposed to be helping education, and uh, they put some, new t- some taxes on uh, young men and women who are, are, are teachers and get fringe benefits. And then they they've stopped the deductibility of interest on college loans, and uh, those two things hurt education. All and what to what avail, I ask. Yeah. You know, the, the 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 diffusion of wealth, the gap in wealth between the rich and the poor, is very upsetting to a good nation, a good society, and uh, they've made it worse. Mr. Bogle, Uh, other than that, I love it.
1: (laughs) Real quick, uh, last question. I'm just wondering. You said in recent comments that stock returns are likely to be about four percent over the next decade. What about bonds, and uh, where do you think are are the most promising assets at this point?
2: Well, stock returns. I've been doing this for 25 years, and ten year in ten year in ten year intervals, and my uh, prognostications for stocks have been about 81 percent. Correlation with what happened, and my view, bond views are about 95% of, of what happened, 95% correlation. Uh, but the reason bonds are relatively easy, it should be a, a number of around 3% per year over the next decade, because the only return you get on a bond is from the interest coupon. And so if you have a portfolio half of corporate bonds and half of the 10 year uh, the 10-year treasury very conservative with a with a corporate half uh, that gives you about 3% today and so that that's that's what you will get in the next 10 years you know if interest rates go down the prices will go up but over 10 years that's apt to to even out
1: that's a huge problem for pensions with an 8% return bogey
2: <laughs> a huge problem <laughs> it's totally defeating the pension funds are not going to be able to meet their Seven and a half or eight percent obligation. And uh, the curious thing is that back in the I guess late '80s, don't hold me the exact date when that when Treasuries were yielding eight percent and uh, the, the pension plans had about a five percent return projection, eight percent for bonds, five percent projection for pensions. And now Treasuries are yielding two and a half or three, depending on whatever you take, and pensions are yielding seven and a half percent. I think it is almost a given that it will end badly.
0: Mr. Bogle, do you believe that artificial intelligence and robo-advisors will do away with the human touch when it comes to investment advice?
2: Well, they will do away with some of it, uh, but, but, but what's, what's happening mostly in, in the robo-area is they're using conventional uh, index funds uh, like the S&P 500, Vanguard S&P 500, I think that's the largest investment at the Betterment. Um uh, and maybe maybe some of the others. So they're, they're just it's that they've been doing so far, mostly asset allocation. and there's no harm done in that. Uh, their asset allocation looks very much like, you know, sort of a 60-40-ish thing generally, up or down, maybe with age or, or aggressiveness of the investor. So uh, it may, it's, I think it's less art, artificial intelligence than asset allocation is as a simple matter. You don't have to beat it to death with data. As for artificial intelligence out there, I read somewhere that people that are trained in artificial intelligence in college, after a couple of years, can make a half a million dollars a year, and I think that's wonderful. But I keep wondering how much people that have real intelligence will make.
0: That was Jack Bogle. He is the founder and retired chief executive of the Vanguard Group and the author of Common Sense on Mutual Funds, New Imperatives for the Intelligent Investor. I'm Pim Fox, along with Lisa Abramowitz. This is Bloomberg.
1: Protests are breaking out in Gaza, Turkey, Germany over President Trump's decision to move the U.S. embassy in Israel to Jerusalem, recognizing that as the capital. This, of course, the subject of a long-standing uh, debate and, and controversy in the region, uh, given the tensions between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Here to talk about it is Daniel Gordas. He is a Bloomberg View columnist, as well as a senior vice president and Coret Distinguished Fellow at Shalem College in Jerusalem, and he joins us. Now, Daniel, thank you so much. What is just to start with, what's the mood like there? Is there an increased kind of tension and expectation of violence around uh, President Trump's decision?
3: It's an interesting question. I think that yesterday in advance of the, the declaration and immediately after, there was a pretty widespread sense here that if there was any violence, it was going to be pretty sporadic and it would pretty much peter out relatively quickly. Uh, I think people are a little bit less confident about that right now. I don't think that anybody's quite panicking yet. Uh, but there have, been, uh, there have been conflicts all along um, the border between Israel and the West Bank. Um, according to the news report, several dozen Palestinians have been injured. I haven't read of any deaths, and I haven't read of any injuries on the side of the Israelis. Um, but uh, a colleague of mine who was working from home today, who works in Maale Adumim, uh, which is uh, inside the West Bank, it's a city that's very much controversial because it's you know, an extension of Jerusalem into the West Bank, uh, she told me that the city was ringed with security people, that they were just making sure that people did not get into the city. So I thought, my sense is, and we heard, by the way, uh, helicopters all in the sky this afternoon, so it may be materializing into a little bit more violence than some people had expected, but there's certainly no panic on the streets and no panic as people are talking.
0: Daniel Gordas, uh, you know, in your uh, good book, uh, Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn, uh, you talk about the role that Jerusalem plays in the history of the region and specifically in the founding of the state of, of Israel. I'm wondering if you could just provide us with some context for uh, Jerusalem, not only as a, a, a geographic location, but as a political location.
3: Right. So Jerusalem was not included, actually, in the borders that the United Nations gave to Israel in that very famous vote of November 1947, when the UN General Assembly created a Jewish state and an Arab state. Uh, Jerusalem was going to be a kind of an internationally monitored area. The Israelis were very unhappy with that, because they wanted Jerusalem to be their capital, but they accepted the UN deal. Uh, The Arabs, of course, did not accept the deal, launched a war, and in the course of that war, Israel captured West Jerusalem. It did not capture East Jerusalem, which it did not get until the 1967 war uh, when Jordan, despite pleas from the Israeli government, decided to enter that war as well. Uh, So Israel has always, since 1949, uh, recognized West Jerusalem as its capital and has wanted the rest of the world to recognize it it's the only country in the world uh, that other countries don't recognize its capital as its capital, and Israelis are always scratching their heads saying, West Jerusalem's clearly not going back, so why can't the rest of the world just acknowledge West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, and East Jerusalem will get re- resolved when the, result, when the situation with the Palestinians gets resolved um, and so I think that you know, from a, from a religious standpoint it's very important to Jews, it's very important to Muslims it's very important to Christians uh, but this is, as you correctly pointed out, has nothing to do with the religious issues. It's all about politics. And I think what the president did yesterday uh, was basically to say, and he said it himself, it's just a matter of recognizing reality. I mean, as he pointed out, the Supreme Court is here, the parliament is here, the president lives here, the prime minister lives here, the vast majority of government offices are here. Yeah. All he's basically saying is that what we're going to do is stop capitulating to the fear of Arab violence, and we're going to call reality what it is, which is that West Jerusalem is Daniel- the capital of Israel.
1: Well, uh, here's just just to push back on that. I mean, a lot of people are saying that this move by President Trump has undermined uh, a U.S. role in the peace process, has inflamed tensions. Uh, uh, Hamas has called for an antifada against Israel this morning. And you have to wonder, at what point is it worth it? I mean, just for to make a political statement.
3: Well, I think that's a great question, so first of all, obviously, if this blows up into a major conflagration, uh, then one could very reasonably ask whether it was worth it or not. I think most people here are still banking on the idea because it doesn't actually change any reality on the ground. Most people are, are banking on the idea that it's not going to become a major conflagration, but you're right. if this gets out of hand, then the question of whether it's worth it is certainly a very good question. Uh, I think that in terms of you know the question of whether or not the president is really kind of moving the United States out of being a legitimate arbiter in the in the process. I mean, first of all, let's remember that count, you know countless presidents, Republicans and Democrats alike, have seen the United States as an important arbiter, and it's gotten us nowhere. And I'm speaking as someone who was in favor of the creation of a Palestinian state, as someone who's not a huge fan of the current president. Uh, but I think that what he said was uh, you know basically true. We haven't we have we as America have not been able to move this process forward, and it, and sort of capitulating to this Palestinian and demand that we not acknowledge West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel has gotten us nowhere. So this has gotten us nowhere. Let's at least call reality on the ground what it is. That's my sense. But obviously, reasonable minds can and do differ. And there are both Israeli leaders and as well as American Jewish leaders on both sides of this divide.
0: Daniel, what has been the reaction, uh, if any, in uh, Arab uh, capitals around the region? And is uh, the status of Jerusalem as important to them now as it once was, perhaps?
3: The reaction is exactly what you'd expect. They're all decrying it and saying it's a terrible idea and so forth. That's part of the sort of the ritual that has to get played here. I think the much deeper issue, and it's a sad one for the Palestinians, quite frankly, is that the Palestinian issue is simply not nearly as important to the Arab world as the Palestinians wish it would be, and it's not as important to the, to the Arab world as it once was. I mean, take Saudi Arabia, for example, which did speak out, because that's what it has to do. But Saudi Arabia doesn't care one little bit. Saudi Arabia is worried about Iran and it needs American and Israeli cooperation on the Iranian uh, on the Iranian issue. So they'll speak out today. They make sure that they can you know sort of make a check mark next to we spoke out against it. But Saudi Arabia couldn't care less. Egypt has completely suppressed Palestinian protests uh, in the streets over the last few years under al Sisi. Uh, so Egypt's not a big help. Over the course of the years, even when Sadat and Menachem Begin negotiated the return of the Sinai, uh, Sadat insisted
4: right. that if he was
3: going to get the Sinai back and sign a deal with Israel. Israel also had to create a Palestinian state. And Begin said no. And so that's it. And that's
0: where we are. Daniel Gordas, Bloomberg View columnist. Thank you very much. He's also the author of Israel, A Concise History of a Nation Reborn. (music) The Uh, founder, one of the co-founders and the head of Carlisle group, the private equity firm, David Rubenstein. It was talking about infrastructure yesterday. He said that he hoped Congress would have passed an infrastructure bill by now. Well, let's find out about why that hasn't happened perhaps, and what could be done to move this along. We have an expert when it comes to infrastructure. Bill Sandbrook is the chief executive of U.S. concrete, and he joins us here in our 11:30 studios, bill. Thank you very much for coming in. Uh, so what would you say to someone like David Rubenstein? He says, look, he says you've got low rates, but most of the US infrastructure is state and local. It is not federal. Why can't we get infrastructure done?
5: No, it's a very good question. We were very hopeful, people in our industry, and obviously both parties had platforms that advocated a trillion dollar spend before either winner was announced. And in fact, at President Trump's inauguration, the second thing he mentioned was one of his top was his top priority was infrastructure spend. And we have been disappointed that it hasn't been more forthcoming. However, having said that, there were priorities that need to be chosen and the priorities were health regulatory reform healthcare reform, taxes and then infrastructure came forth. And there were forth because and there were reasons for that sequence. So I'm patient. This problem has not developed overnight. This problem's not going to be fixed overnight. So if it's pushed a, a year or a number of months as it looks like it's going to be pushed into next year, I'm not despondent about that. The needs continue to grow and I think the federal government's going to have to address it one way or another and there is bipartisan support for it.
1: Bill, do you have a sense of How it would take place, how big it would be, as well as where the money would go. Would it go to projects that would apply uh, for funding? Would it go to uh, public-private kind of partnerships that Mm -hmm. would then invest? What's your sense? Well, it's
5: going to be a combination of of all the above. The public-private partnerships are one piece of it. And if you remember, as this has transpired, the administration was really hanging the hat on that that would be the linchpin of any further, any additional spend or increased spending. That has moderated to some extent. There is talk about gas tax increases. At least the administration doesn't have them dead on arrival. It does come down to funding eventually funding and priorities. There is a a list of 50 top priority infrastructure projects in the country that the governor's developed and has been put to the Secretary of Transportation. One critical one is the Gateway Project that links Newark and New York City with a new tunnel, a new rail tunnel and whatnot. Um, I think over time, these things are going to happen. The devil's in the details of funding. and, And it's been like that since 1992. So no change there.
0: You know, you've been on uh, a little bit of an acquisition trail, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if you could describe uh, what you've done, particularly in California, mm-hmm. but also why? Why acquire rather than build? And that kind of highlights this idea of trying to get the permits and trying to
5: deal with local and, you know, state, municipalities, so on in order to make your business. Yeah, no, it's a very insightful question. Both coasts, California particularly, it's very difficult to get through any environmental permitting process for whether it be an infrastructure project like a road, an airport, or an industrial manufacturing facility. We operate in heavily uh, urbanized environments where permitting is is extremely difficult. Um, And to that end, we just made an acquisition on November 17th, Polaris Materials, a big quarry in Canada, because... California aggregates are being depleted rapidly and there are no new quarries coming online. Therefore, the cost of aggregates are becoming ever expensive. We had an opportunity to buy this quarry and ship uh, aggregates down into our facilities in San Francisco so we can be self-sufficient. It, it helps our profitability. Uh, and, and as well, we got a, a terminal in, in Los Angeles because we are growing through acquisition and expansion, which now gives us a beachhead into consolidating the Los Angeles market.
1: Considering that you made a purchase in Canada, Uh it's important to look at what the trade relationship will be with the U.S. and uh, Canada Uh and elsewhere. And I'm just wondering, uh, have the increased tensions around trade affected you at all? Do you expect them to affect you? Do you think that they have been overblown?
5: No, I I think they're valid. I don't expect them to impact arrogates. Arrogates have been shipped on both coasts from Canada because of the the inability to get new permits in the New York area, for instance, or in California. The arrogates have to come from somewhere. Uh, they're very expensive to, to travel by truck long distances from inland. So the sheer economics of it will, will underpin the, the viability of it long term. I'm not overly worried about free trade, the Canadian uh, trade pact, as it relates to aggregates. talk about the raising money,
0: uh, whether it's in the debt markets. You don't mm-hmm. have a lot of debt. I think about six hundred million in total. Mm-hmm. Uh, easy to access money right now. I mean, people throwing money at you to say, "Gee, you know, we're looking for yield. So why don't you borrow some and go out and buy a bunch
5: of?" Companies? Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, we've been very successful over the last six years with our strategy. With success comes the the benefits of having people want to loan you money so you can continue to be successful. So I think it would be easy to access at this time. Whether we would take that on as debt or equity would depend on the amount of money we need. And we are a cyclical business, though. So we have to be very cognizant that the good times that we have now, you know, they won't last forever, despite any governmental policy, despite our hope. It, Construction is a cyclical business, and we have to be mindful of that.
1: Real quick, when do you think that the uh, cycle will start turning?
5: Well... With the tax reform, I continue, to move the, I continue to move this out. You have to remember this has been a historically slow recovery right. at, at very low rates, which is, I think, good because you're, we're preventing new, new peaks and new bubbles. And to the extent it continues at this gradual pace, I think the tax reform is going to extend in another two years. I'm looking into 2020, 2021, 2022, but uh, it's, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a clairvoyant.
1: Well... You'll have to. I'll pull out my crystal ball, and you can try your hand. Bill Sandbrook, thank you so much for joining us. Bill Sandbrook, CEO of U.S. Concrete, here talking about uh, the infrastructure plans that are evidently in the works. We just uh, are going to have to wait to see them. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. Individual investors are plowing their money into U.S. stocks at a record pace, at least by one measure, raising a big question. Are they coming in too late when the stocks are too valuable and are destined to cool off? Here to answer that question is Randy Frederick. He is vice president of trading and derivatives for the Schwab Center for Financial Research, which is based in Austin, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Randy, um, Are you concerned about the flood of retail cash uh, and just sort of the general increase in allocations to U.S. equities?
4: Not yet. So the question is, are they coming in too late? I would say they're coming in late in the game, but it's probably not too late. I would say for the first eight years of this bull market, the big question that I got at all the client events I got, and my counterparts heard the same thing, was, what's the next shoe to drop? When is this all going to end? What's going to cause the next crash? It's only been within about the last quarter, last three, four months, that we've actually seen a shift in investor sentiment to, oh, this rally is legitimate. This bull market does have some legs. And part of that, I think, is that we've got an incredibly solid fundamental backdrop. And we frankly think that's going to continue at least into the first half of next year.
0: Doesn't worry you that now you've
4: got people who were bearish turning bullish? To some extent, it does. It doesn't mean we're at the end. It may mean that we're at the very beginning stages of what could end up being the end, but the end could well be a year into the future. And in fact, historically, when you start to see all of the, even the most ardent skeptics come into the market, it may be the sign of the beginning, but many times that has lasted more than a year, maybe even a year and a half to two years after that. So, it does have some sort of a sign, but it does, definitely does not point to a top just yet.
0: All right. I want to ask you about something that we, met, we re- report on on a regular basis, and this has to do with the VIX, uh, the volatility index. Mm-hmm. Does this really matter anymore? Do people still use the options uh, that are linked to the VIX in order to speculate, or has this become an indicator whose time has kind of come and gone?
4: Well, so I've been studying the VIX ever since it first in, came out. In fact, it, it was it was created the month before I started working with Charles Schwab back in 1993. So I've been and being involved in derivatives and, and volatility and all these things. I've sort of been studying it every day since then. So, yes, I think it still matters because what it really tells us, and this is where the problem comes in, I think, with retail investors and some of these products that are allegedly linked to the VIX, is that, It really tells you how much the institutional funds are hedging a large market downturn. And the fact that we've had historically low levels of the VIX, 45 days, I think it is, that we've closed below 10 this year. We're at 10.15 right now, just at 10.15 right now. Unheard of. just simply means that those who run the big institutional hedge funds are not concerned of a major downturn. That doesn't mean we couldn't get a 5% pullback. And frankly, that might even be a healthy thing. But the problem with investors who trade or speculators who trade products linked to the VIX, whether it's VIX futures, VIX options, or even a VIX ETF or ETN, is that they think it's tied directly to the VIX index. And they don't really understand in most cases that it's actually tied to VIX futures, which don't move nearly as much as the VIX. So unfortunately, when I often caution investors about this when I speak at seminars is you shouldn't spend all of your time trying to predict when the next big VIX spike will happen because it's very, very difficult to do. Instead, wait until the VIX happens, and then take a position that can benefit when the VIX comes back down. Because we see the VIX come back down every time it spikes, pretty much.
1: So given your experience with derivatives, let's talk about one that's gotten a lot of attention. It's going to start trading on Sunday. It's the Bitcoin futures contract. It's come under a lot of criticism by a number of big firms. How worried are you about this?
4: Well, I think it's again. It is definitely a speculative instrument. It's something that we're keeping an eye on at Charles Schwab. We we don't aren't prepared to to make any changes at this point. Um, I I think what has been driving the Bitcoin price and the reason it's we've seen such a dramatic rise, not just this year, it's up twelve hundred percent, but in just really the last few weeks, is the introduction of the VIX futures. I think those who own, I'm sorry, of uh, Bitcoin futures, those who own Bitcoin, I believe, think that that if futures are launched and it provides the avenue for many more investors to get into Bitcoin than who are currently in it, that it will likely drive the price higher. That may or may not be the case, but I think that's what, what may be driving the price of Bitcoin right now.
0: All right. As you are an expert in the world of uh, trading and derivatives, have you seen a convergence between futures and options because they used to be pretty separate in terms of the way you would position a portfolio and as a manager you wouldn't necessarily mix the two but that line seems to have been
4: blurred completely Well, back in the old days, futures firms were separate and unique in most cases from regular brokerage firms that would typically trade stocks, ETFs, options, but the futures business was kind of separate. What happened in many cases, and and Charles Schwab is a good example of that, is that firms that We're traditionally stock and option and mutual fund brokers have also acquired or gotten into the futures business. We acquired a company called Options Express, which most people know. We recently finished the final integration, and so futures is a part of our product mix. And it's become a much more broadly accepted product to mainstream investors, where in the old days it really wasn't. And I think it was the introduction, this probably goes back maybe almost 10 to 15 years, the introduction of the mini-sized contracts, which really made futures – Accessible to well, retail you didn't have investors. to put up
0: huge amounts of collateral to yes, trade, them. and
4: with the mini size contracts, that's no longer necessary. So that made it really a much more acceptable and and really um, attainable product, if you will, to a retail investor. Do you watch the volume levels? Do you watch the interest level that customers uh, express by using that uh, that platform at Schwab? Certainly, we do. Um, we don't publish those numbers. We sort of group them all together with our trading volumes. But I will say that one thing that has limited to some extent the growth in futures to retail investors is also the introduction of many many etfs and etns that have access to the futures market so those who don't want to provide that ability to trade futures directly can get access to that through their regular equity positions using etns and etfs so i think to some extent that has cannibalized a bit of the futures business
0: all right. Well, well done. Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Randy Frederick, Vice President of Trading and Derivatives for the Schwab Center for Financial Research based in Austin, Texas. And you can follow Randy on Twitter at Randy A. Frederick. And that's uh, F-R-E-D-E-R-I-C-K. Thank you very much for being here. Looking forward to, of course, uh, speaking with you in the future.